Growing up, my parents had a closet that was filled top to bottom with board games. I wish I could say that was because we had family game night on a regular basis, but the honest truth is it was more like a museum exhibit to what used to be. As the board games began to collect dust, um, we, we, ne we very rarely played board games, and then as I got married, Anna likes to have a game night at least once a month, so she's not nearly as competitive as me. She enjoys it more for the social aspect. I enjoy it for the competitive nature. But I remember growing up that there was this one particular board game that I don't know that I've ever actually played, but I have drug out of that closet more times than I care to admit. It was one of those games where it took 45 minutes to set it up and about 10 minutes to play. And when I name it, some of you are going to go, yep, I remember that game. It was a game called Mousetrap. And all uh, some folks are going, yeah, uh-huh. And it took forever to set up. And I think the beauty of the game was not necessarily the gameplay itself, but it was this, this Rube Goldberg-type mousetrap that you'd set up. And then you'd get to see it go off, and, and one thing caused another thing and another thing. And I loved setting it up and watching the mousetrap go off. And even now, if I find myself playing around on YouTube or something and I see a video of one of those, I like to watch it. See how this connects to this, connects to this. And, and it's that, that idea of cause and effect, where one thing causes this to happen and affects this thing and it affects this thing and so on and so forth. And, and then I started thinking about growing up and how there was this cause and effect. If I did my chores... I got an effect, which was my allowance. If I didn't do my chores, well, I also got an effect that may or may not be what I wanted it to be. And, and I started thinking about how it even kind of flowed through my own faith journey. If I woke up, I went to church without complaining, we got to go to the Chinese buffet after worship. That was the effect. If I went to, to vacation Bible school, then my parents would often reward me with a prize if I made it through the week without getting in trouble. And there was a cause and effect that started to take place within my faith journey. And this may just be me that grew up this way. But what, we, what I started to realize is growing up, that my belief was that I had to do enough in order to be enough. I had to do enough things in order to be accepted into the church. And as we jump into our text today, we're reminded that, that Paul's writing to a church in Galatia, a church that has kind of lost their way, if you will, that started to say you have to do this and be like us in order to fit in. And I know it says that we're going to start in Galatians 3, verse 1, but I actually want to jump back to chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, Through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And I want to stop right there because Paul's setting up an argument that we're about to dive into. But that phrase, if righteousness can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If if you can achieve salvation through your own personal being good enough, through your own personal actions, then Jesus' death was meaningless is what Paul is saying. And he goes on and he continues in chapter 3. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? Who has led you astray? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. He says, You saw it happen. And I would like to learn just one thing from you. When that happened, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And so what he's asking them is this. Even to us today, we may not have physically seen it, but we know that it happened. We've encountered the story. We've heard the good news. And here's what he's asking. Did you receive salvation by your acts or because you believed it was true? Did you receive salvation because you upheld all of the rules and regulations? Or did you receive salvation through Jesus Christ and your faith in his death and resurrection? He goes on and says, Are you so foolish that after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And he's just doubling down on this idea of is it your actions that bring about God's grace and mercy within you or is it your faith in God and God alone? He's saying, don't be fooled into thinking that this salvation is because of something you've done. The good news and the good work that God has done in and through you and through this church and is continuing to do is through Christ alone. And don't lose sight of Jesus and the hustle and bustle. He says, you fools, don't start to think that your acts can bring about your own salvation. Your actions didn't make you right with God, and they won't keep you right with God. Because here's what I want us to hear today, and this is what Paul is pointing the people to. God is not about behavior modification, but about heart restoration. God is not about behavior modification, but about heart restoration. And he's saying, don't be fooled into thinking that you can become some kind of functional moralist. And and what I mean by that is one of those people that we see so often reflected today, I just have to do enough. 
And don't mishear me. The church has a part to play in this because I think so often growing up we heard messages that sounded like this. Honor your father and mother. It's a good teaching, but why? Take care of those in need. It's a good teaching, but why? Make sure you give 10%. It's a good teaching, but why? And so what has happened is if we're not careful, we become these people that are doing a list of checks that say, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that, I'm supposed to do this. And the question still remains, why? And if we're not careful, this this moralism can become our religion. That we start thinking, I have to do all of this to be this. And it it was reflected when I was growing up and what I was always told, as I said, do your chores, you get an allowance. Don't? Well, you know. And as you, as you grow up, this is how it reflects in your faith sometimes. It says, if I tithe, God will bless me. Anybody ever heard a sermon like that? If you give, God will give back unto you, and that's why you give. The truth is, is we give because God has first given unto us. And we are giving back a portion of what he has blessed us with. But so often we hear this idea that why do we give? Because it will benefit us in some way. Because God will give back. Why do we pray? So that God will protect us and do what we ask God to do. And when God doesn't answer the prayers in the way that we want God to answer, all of a sudden we find ourselves frustrated because we've lost sight that the idea of prayer is a two-way street and it is a call for us to align ourselves with the will of God. I read a quote this past week from Satchel Paige, a baseball pitcher, and he said, so many of us pray when it's raining. He says, but if you don't pray when it's sunshine and don't worry about praying when it's raining, because what he's pointing to is this, that so often we come and go, God, I need you now, but when things are good, God, I'm going to lay you aside because it's all about me. And we can find ourselves worshiping, being good people, doing good things, rather. And there's a question that pops up ever so often in ministry, and it's a good question, but this is how the idea of being or doing good things can reflect as our religion. Anybody ever ask this question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Like I said, don't mishear me. Good question. But what we've lost sight of is this. There was only one human being that was ever truly, wholly good. And we see what happened to him. But we start thinking that if I do enough, then bad things won't happen to me. If I act right, then bad things won't happen. And notice that God never promises you that bad things won't happen. What God promises us is that even amidst the storm, I am with you all the way. And so Paul is pointing them back. He's saying, let us not lose focus on the good news of Jesus Christ so much so that we focus only on our good deeds. But he's calling them back and saying, 
Your good deeds without a good heart mean absolutely nothing. We hear him later in Corinthians where he will talk about the idea it's like just a clanging cymbal if we act without love. And I love the fact that what we're about to jump into beginning in verse 6 is that Paul says, hey, y'all have bought into the law and that's wonderful, good, great, awesome. But what he's about to point to them is, hey, let's not lose sight of where the law came from. Because remember, the first couple of chapters of this, Paul is looking at the church in Galatia going, y'all have said the mark of Christianity is this, circumcision. Well, where does that come from? Why is that the deciding factor? And he points them in verse 6 of chapter 3 to this. He says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by what? By faith. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so Paul points them back to the story of Abraham, the story that they keep harping on. This is why we have to do this stuff. And what's funny is that Paul points them, and if you look at the story in Genesis 15, and we look at it just in verse 5 and 6 where it says, after God has shown himself and revealed himself to Abraham, and he says, you will have more children than the stars in the sky. He says, he took him out and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars if you can. Then he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The very word where we're looking at Paul saying, this is not how you get righteous by actions, we hear in Genesis 15, what brought about righteousness for Abraham? His faith in God. And, and, and if, you, if you haven't been tracking, here's the fun part. You know what happens later in Genesis 17, because 17 comes after 15, is then God says, hey, Because we've engaged in relationship, because we have started to know each other, because we've started to grow closer and bonding with each other, now let's have a mark that says you are mine. And that's where the promise of of the circumcision comes. 
It's kind of like God says, hey, now that we are close, now that we've developed this relationship, let's develop a secret handshake. Let's develop a nickname for each other. Because we all have those that we have with our closest of friends, right? Little nicknames that we say that nobody else understands. And that's what, what God is pointing to. That's what Paul is pointing to is this, that obedience is a result of faith, not a means of salvation. Obedience follows faith. But faith is key. And so he's, he's pointing them to this, and he's saying, here's the problem. That not only do we buy into this for ourselves, but even if you go, oh, I already know that Jesus came and died for me, we force this belief upon other people as well. We go, oh, you see what they did? You see how they acted? They must not know Jesus. Oh, they're not saved. And we judge their actions before we get to know the people before we get to know their heart, before we even know what's going on. As the old adage says, we, to get to know somebody, we've got to walk a mile in their shoes, which means, heaven forbid, you've got to get to know somebody. You, you've got to say, I'm not going to judge you by your actions, but what I want to do is enter into a relationship with you. You see, somehow along the way, the church has started to promote this mentality that says... You must first behave, and then believe, and then you can belong. you gotta, you got to act right in order to be welcomed here. And then as you're acting right, maybe you'll start to understand this. And then we'll allow you to be a part of us. But what, what Scripture proclaims is this. You belong. Why? Because Jesus said you belong. We don't get to define who's a member of the church because Jesus said, I came and died for all people to welcome them in. So you are a part of the family. And as you start to understand that and you start to understand the love of Jesus Christ, here's the problem. We go out and we go, you have to do this. You've got to act right. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian acts like. And we never, ever, ever share with them the love of Jesus Christ we just keep telling them they got to do better and as they do better then we'll accept them and we never tell them who they are in the eyes of God because we're too busy judging them through our own eyes and see what Jesus says is in order for the church he says you belong because I came and I lived and I died for all people and then as you belong you start to believe as you encounter this relationship with me and as you believe then you start to behave differently. Don't mishear me. Our behavior does change. But as we've heard growing up People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's as we engage in this relationship with Christ that we start to hear his commands and go, you know what, I want that for my life because I trust that God's will and God's way is greater than my own understanding. And I think if we're honest, all of us wrestle with this on a daily basis. Yeah, God, I know what you said, but I think I know better. 
And then what we start to realize is sometimes we need to realize that God is not in the business of behavioral modification, but of heart restoration. Because when we struggle with obedience... It's not the fact that we did wrong. It's the fact that our heart was wrong when we did it. And so we need to get our heart right with God. We need to stop judging each other by actions and start getting to the heart of the issue. We live in a behavior modification world. Don't do this, don't do that. We'll reward you if you do this, but we're going to punish you if you do that. And so we try to change the way that people act, and we say, do better, instead of focusing on the idea of be better. Too many of us in the church, myself included, live in a world that says, I'm going to do, I'm going to do better. And Jesus is going, no, 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 stop worrying about doing better. Start worrying about being better. Realizing that your heart's wrong and you need to become more in tune with my will and my way. And I love that in verse 13 when he points this out, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He's pointing out Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Yet again, he's going to the Old Testament form and he said, y'all want to talk about the Old Testament? Let's talk about it. He says, when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang them on a tree, their corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury them that same day. This is reflected, this law, this order in the crucifixion of Jesus. Y'all remember when they're hanging on the tree and they're sitting around and the centurions go, do we need to break their legs? Because we got to get them dead before the sun sets, before a new day begins. And they realize that Jesus is already dead and that's when they puncture his side and the water and the blood flow out. Remember. But it goes on. And it says, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Which raises a question, may raise a conflict in your heart. Anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Does that mean that Jesus Christ is under God's curse? How does that work? And what what Paul is pointing to is this. Jesus Christ willingly, willingly took it on for you. Because the curse, as we hear later, the wage of sin is death. And and Jesus willingly took on that curse for you and for me and for all people that we may be brought into the family and know that we belong. And so what, what Paul points to is this. That we have to decide where we fall on this issue. We are either cursed by the law or redeemed by Christ. Can't sit on the fence. It's either your actions that save you or it's your faith that saves you. And then your faith leads you to different actions as Jesus restores your heart. And here's what he's pointing them to, is not only is this true of you, as he says, you've been fooled to believe it's not, but it's also true of everyone else. That they need to have Jesus in their heart. They need to engage in relationship and that will change the way they behave. Some of us, 
find ourselves sitting here today knowing, as my wonderful mentor John Moore would say, that we need behavior modification because we go throughout our days and our weeks sowing our wild oats, and then we just come Sunday morning and pray for a crop failure, knowing that we're going to go out and keep doing what we've always been doing. And so some of us come on Sunday morning praying for behavior modification. But we, in fact, need a heart restoration. I've had this conversation with many people where they go, yeah, um, I guess I forgive them. I guess I'll start acting cordially to them. But my heart is still angry. And I'm still mad. And I still hate them. But I'll put on a smile because that's what we do in the South. And we say things like, bless your heart. And that's how we act. And God says, it's not enough to simply have hollow acts if your heart's not behind it. And so we don't need to look at behavior modification. We need to look at a heart restoration. And so Paul lays it out. He says, Jesus is the way to salvation. Faith in Christ. And as you believe and engage in relationship with Christ, then your actions change because you seek to glorify and honor Him in all that you say and do. This is what Paul is pointing them to this day. This is what Paul is pointing us to this day. That it's not about behavior modification, but a heart restoration. Amen?